still taking care of his own. God, thank you so much for being so incredibly, incredibly good. God, there's never been a time that you're not good. There's never been a situation that you're not good. There's never been a bad thing happen that you're not still good. God, I just want to tell you, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you that Christ would come and die for us. While we were yet sinners at our absolute worst, you'd come and pay the price. Thank you for the Christmas season that we're coming up on, God. Thank you for hearing and answering prayers. Thank you, God, that some of these with COVID are now getting to go home. And, Lord, that signs are a little better for some. Father, I pray you continue to hear and answer prayers. Lord, we pray for those that are sick. Ask you, would you touch them, God? Lord, I pray you'd be here in the midst tonight, Father, as we, we look here at the last part of what, what we call chapter 9 in this letter to the church at Rome. I pray you'd teach us something, God. Give us some wisdom and understanding that would help us to be a better servant, God. It would help us to be more pleasing to you. We love you, Father. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going we're gonna to pick up here verse number 14. I, I think I told you 16, but that's all right. We're going to back up a couple more verses anyway. We certainly haven't been doing a verse-by-verse verse study. It's been more of an overview study. Tonight will be no different. We've been looking kind of at the book of Romans in sections. If we did a verse-by-verse, verse, it would take probably three weeks just to do a verse, especially if we did word studies. But what we're going to do is take the final, the final section. I want to try to finish as best as I can tonight, even if it takes me a few minutes extra, because we won't be back for four, maybe five weeks on Wednesday night. I want to try to finish this section here for the whole last part of Romans chapter 9. And Paul is teaching something here in this next section, beginning in verse number 14, that is at least, if not the greatest, it is among the greatest passages in all the Bible on the sovereignty of God. As Paul is reaching back into the history of the Jews here to demonstrate God's sovereignty and, and God's will and, and God's relationship and everything that he does in accordance with his word. Um, chapter 9, verse 14, what time is it? Let me see if I've got time to read all this passage. Um, yeah, we're going to take time. We just may be late. Verse number 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then is it not him of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will, and on whom he, will he hardeneth. And thou wilt say then unto me, Why not? Why don't he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay? Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, Fitted to destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he also, as he saith also in O.C., I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. It shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. 
Isaiah also cried concerning Israel, Though the number of her children be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. He will finish the work and cut short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. As Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Seboeth hath left us seed, we had been as Sodoma and been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained the law of righteousness? Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Thank you. You can be seated. We're going to try to get through all these real quick and overview. I actually started a, a new course at Anderson um, Andersonville Theological Seminary this week. The course is Matthew chapter 1. Um, and, and I'm telling you this to, to show you how things tie together in the Word of God. Before I could even listen to the first lecture, I thought I was going to listen to the lecture Monday. That's before I got my homework assignment. Um, before I could even watch the first class, I had to read the entire book of Matthew twice. Um, I had to order some books online, some by... Amazon to get them in, but before he came to the class, I had to read a book called The Kingdoms in Conflict, a book called The Kingdom of Heaven and the Gospel of Matthew, The Purpose of Matthew's Gospel Part 1, The Purpose of Matthew's Gospel Part 2, which was only 31 pages, Matthew's Chaotic Structure and Dispensational Implications, and then the first 51 pages of a book called Matthew written by Turner before I could even listen to the class. And it seems like each one of these lectures have similar homework assignments before you can watch them, but the reason that you continue in seminary, the reason that you continue in a Bible college or some form of organized study is to continue to learn all that you can about the Word of God. An organized Bible study, and I'm telling you, there's so much more for you than just getting up, reading your few verses on, in the morning or doing a short, quick devotion in the morning. An organized study, a word study, some breakdown passage study will help you learn things that you never knew uh, a good study is great. I remember back in the late 80s when I read the Bible through in a year for the first time, but my goal was to get through reading, and I can promise you by 12 noon I could not tell you one thing that I read. So you need to read it. You need to have read it, but if your comprehension is like mine, there needs to be more. There needs to be a breakdown in study, um, and if you get into an organized study, then you begin to see things that you've never seen and and learn things that you never knew. But as we already know, the Word of God is in context, complete context. From in the beginning to amen is the Word of God. You can't take out a single passage. You put everything together. And one of the things that I learned here in reading Matthew gave me an even better understanding of what I was trying to study here in Romans. It made some things that I was studying in Romans make more sense than they made to me before I started studying Matthew. So it shows us the importance of, of putting everything together. When Matthew begins in chapter 1, he begins with the genealogy. But if you've read it and you know, he does not do the genealogy from Adam to Christ, but from Abraham to Christ. Three generations of 14. I don't have time to get off into that. The number 3 is the resurrection. The number 14 is deliverance. And you got three 14s, which Jesus Christ is our deliverance. But, but he started with Abraham. In the, if you read in that genealogy, there are several Gentile women 
in the line of Christ. The Gentiles were considered dogs, but what it shows is that God can use anybody to accomplish his will no matter what. God can use the vilest person on this planet to give you a job to work, to pay your bills and feed your family. God can use anything at any time, but something that I never really thought of before, that Matthew identifies Christ to his readers there as I was studying. He shows the success of Christ in every area where Israel failed. Israel was given the law. Israel was given everything by God. It was all handed to Israel. They were to be the children of God. Yet every command that God gave to them, they failed at. Christ succeeded in every command, fulfilled every command, and fulfilled every law. Paul here goes back into the past failures of Israel to show us the sovereignty of God. Paul shows us how in his sovereignty God pardons Israel and all their failures, but yet it says there that he punishes Pharaoh. God dealing with them in their, their past is always based on wisdom. We've still been looking a lot at that term um, predestined. We, we've only looked at that word in that one Wednesday night and predestination, but it still continues to carry a theme throughout. See, God's rejection of the majority of the Jews does not mean that, that God's promises have failed because the wisdom of God, God already knew of their failures. God knew of the failures before he made the promise. Therefore, the promise did not become void because of the failure because God already knew what was going to happen, but God also knows what hasn't happened yet. God also knows about the thousand-year millennial reign that will happen after the seven-year tribulation. It will happen after the rapture. So God already knows all of those things. So, so here in the first example of Paul, he goes back to Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. Remember, we glanced at it. It's kind of where we left off last week. As Moses went up on Mount Sinai and God gave him the commandments and God put them on tablets of stone. He had the Ten Commandments and he came down and kind of as I said last week, modern day terms, before the ink was even dry. They were dancing around a golden calf down there. They brought their rings and their earrings to Aaron and had them make this golden calf. And before God, before his, his voices even stopped ringing from giving the Ten Commandments, they're already down there idol worshiping. Moses comes down and sees it and somewhat in a rage, if you will, he breaks the tablets. He breaks the stones that the Ten Commandments have been written on. But then he took that golden calf and he crushed it. He ground that thing into a powder, spread it all over their drinking water, and then he made them drink that golden calf. But then he offers this challenge in Exodus chapter 32, verse 26. Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. All the sons of Levi gathered themselves together with him. Only the tribe of Levi came forth. But in verse number 7, Moses commanded those of the tribe of Levi to put to death by sword all of those who forsook the laws of God. Verse number 27, he saith unto them, Thus saith the Lord of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. The children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and their fellow the people that day about 3,000 men. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. It came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure, I shall make an atonement for your sin. 
Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin. They've made them gods of gold. Here's the verse that we talked about last week because I ran out of time. Verse number 32, Yet now, if thou wilt, forgive their sin. If not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. That's the same passionate kind of prayer that we see the Apostle Paul praying here in chapter 9 as he prays for his fellow countrymen in, in their sin and their rebellion as they try to hang on to the Old Testament law and, and forsake what is Christ, the fulfillment of the law. So God answered Moses. The answer is given to us here. Now Paul gives it to verse 15, but verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Verse 15, for he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then is it not of him that willeth or of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. We see that even though Israel failed, God showed them great mercy. So in that we can clearly see that the sovereignty of God does not exclude the mercy of God. But then he goes on in verse 17. He says, the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose, have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom, whom he will he hardeneth. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart and God caused Pharaoh to fall, right? Wrong. That, that's why it's important to study the scriptures. That, that's why you can't take one-liners. That's why you can't take a single text. You have to take all the scripture and context and put them together. That there are two extremes that when you read the word of God and when you study the word of God, there, there's two extremes that you have to stay away from. One of them is the extreme that God is so kind that he could never put judgment on anybody. God is always good. Make no mistake about that. There's never a time that God is not good and holy and righteous and perfect and sovereign, but God will condemn unconfessed, unforgiven sin. So don't ever get caught up in the extreme that he's so good that he won't pass judgment. The other extreme is to overemphasize the severity of God. In every judgment that was brought on mankind throughout the word of God, every man was given chance after chance after chance after chance after chance after chance after chance to repent, to turn around, to come back, to, to be restored. God is very long-suffering in his patience. How many of you in here say, thank you, God? How many of your own life, you know there's a time when God was long-suffering, he forbeared with you, he continued to just hold on, gave you undeserved chance after undeserved chance until we finally got turned around and got some things straight. If you look at the flood, God gave them at least 140 years plus to turn around, to come back, gave them every opportunity to get on that boat. But when the flood came, it was swift and decisive. You think about Sodom and Gomorrah. They were given chance after chance after chance. They were given warning and every opportunity to straighten out the wickedness of the city. But when the hail of fire and brimstone came, it was quick and it was decisive. Israel was warned time and time and time and time again. But yet when God allowed the Assyrians to come in and overthrow them, it was quick and decisive. When the Babylonians come in and destroyed them, it was quick and decisive. Second Peter tells us, chapter 1, verse 20, that no scriptures of any private interpretation. So we know that, that at no point is any scripture to be taken out of context and to be isolated to try to make one verse say something that it doesn't say. 
So when we study anything in the Word of God, it is imperative that we keep the entire Word of God in context when we're looking at it. It's especially important here to keep things in context when we look at scriptures like what we have here in our text. In order to get the context of what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, we need to do a complete study on the book of Exodus. But let's just do a little quick generic study on Exodus to try to see what he's talking about here. In the account of Exodus, the word hardened or hardened, as he talks about he hardened his heart, that word is used 20 times. Now, I've used this example a lot of times, but it fits well here. I'll use it again. In the Word of God, the, the English language is kind of a lazy language, if you will. And in the Word of God, a lot of times in our translation, we have a word that has multiple meanings. If we use the word light in the Word of God, then what the word light means depends on the context of the structure of the sentence. It, it can be talking about lighting a candle. He can be talking about lighting a fire. Or he can't be talking about it's light outside. Or you can't be talking about turn the light on so that we can see inside. Or he can't be talking about I can pick this up because it is extremely light. So we have one English word, but it covers several different Greek and Hebrew words throughout the text. So it's kind of the same thing as what we have here in this word used about harden because there's three different Hebrew words used here in this passage in Exodus. The first word means to make hard or insensible. The next word means to make firm or unimpressionable. The third word means to make stiff so as to be immovable. So our text here, verse 18 says, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now if we go to Exodus and we take the 20 times that we find these words used, what we learn is that 10 of these passages used for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is ascribed to Pharaoh himself. The other ten times that Pharaoh's heart is hardened, those times are ascribed to God hardening his heart. But then comes the part that it's important for us to understand what Paul is talking about. Before the ten plagues, before God ever brought all of the plagues on the land, before Aaron ever threw down his rod and it became a serpent, before any of that ever happened, Pharaoh's heart was already hardened. And God already knew it. God had already told Moses that his heart is hardened and he's not going to let the people go. So God in his sovereignty, God in his wisdom, God in his foreknowledge already knew, I'm going to send my servant to go tell him, but the servant, let me go ahead and let you know, he ain't going to listen. He, his heart is hard. He's got his mind made up. Now, that was, that was before the plagues. Now, as we look at the plagues, after each of the first five plagues, if you go study through Exodus, each of the first five plagues, after those plagues, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was attributed to Pharaoh. God didn't harden his heart. He hardened his own heart. He had his own mind made up. Only after resisting the sixth plague do we find the hardening of Pharaoh's heart for the first time ascribed to God. But even then, God left room for repentance. In the seventh plague, it, it is Pharaoh who hardened his heart. So even after the sixth time and even after God hardened his heart, God still in the seventh plague left room for Pharaoh to come in and repent and God still forgive him and God still clean him up. Exodus chapter 9 verse 34, this is the seventh plague when Aaron saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased. 
He sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. It wasn't until after the eighth plague that every time after the eighth plague, when, when his heart was hardened, that it was attributed to God. So what we see is that not only did, did Pharaoh resist the command that was given by Moses, but he tried to do everything he could to prove that he was more powerful than God. You understand Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the land. He says, you die, you're dead. However he says, die. Whatever he said, go. So he sets out to prove that he is more powerful. When Aaron cast the, the rod down on the ground and it became a serpent, it says that the Egyptian musicians all cast down their rods. And of course, by the power of the devil and the devil that was in them, it says that their rods became serpents also. But then the word of God tells us Exodus 7, 12, that Aaron's rod consumed, ate up all of the Egyptian magician's rod. But then after the third plague, the Bible tells us that the magicians also tried to duplicate that miracle. It says in Exodus 8.18, the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lies, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Verse number 19, the magicians said unto Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. So what, what we see that God already knew is what Pharaoh was going to do. God didn't make his heart hard. God gave him every chance to turn around. God just already knows things in his infinite wisdom. Now, after the seventh plague, Pharaoh acknowledges that he's wrong. He says in verse 27 of Exodus chapter 9 that Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and I and my people are wicked. Entreat the Lord for it is enough that there be no more mighty thunderings in hell and I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Moses said unto him, as soon as I'm gone out of the city, I'll spread abroad my hands unto the Lord the thunder shall cease, neither shall there be any more hell, that thou mayest knowest how that the earth is the Lord's. But then verse 34. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hell and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So what we clearly see is that Pharaoh was given every opportunity. It wasn't until he admitted that he knew he was wrong. He admitted that he knew he and his people were sinners. He admitted that he knew he'd sinned against God. Therefore, he knew at that point, we know that he knew that God was God. Once he knew that God was God and he still rejected him, after that, God began to harden his heart. God gave him every opportunity to, to not only realize but confess with his own mouth, I know that God is God and that I'm a sinner. But then he came back and said, so what? I'm going to do it my way anyway. Back to our text here, Romans chapter 9, verse number 19. Paul turns to the sovereignty of God's will. He says, thou wilt say then unto me, why doth ye find 
why doth yet he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? God does not have to answer man. Any, anybody ever ask God why? I have. Multiple times. I grew up in that old school stuff that it was a sin to ask God why. I never understood that. I never understood if he's my father and he loves me, why can't I, why can't I just come to him and tell him, God, I don't understand this. I, 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 don't, I don't understand why babies die. I don't understand why bad things happen to presumably good people. I don't, I don't understand things. Why is it wrong to ask God why? Well, I don't believe that bunch of garbage lies anymore. I think I can sit down and talk to God and ask him why. But he doesn't have to tell me. What he can do is give me grace and comfort and peace to get by and give me the grace to carry on through things that I don't have to understand. But, but man has no right to question God. As we looked at last week, we only have a fraction of the information. God has all of the past and all of the present and all of the future, and God has it all in his knowledge and all in his perfect purpose, and we have this little bitty fraction of what's going on around us, and we act as though we have the knowledge to question God's authority about why about things. Paul says, how foolish can a man be? Verse number 20, nay, but old man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? But then there's a terminology. I got time. I got time. We're going to do good. I got time. We're going to do good. There's a terminology used here in the next two verses, really, 22 and 23, that I want to take a quick look at. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Y'all see that? Fitted to destruction. Verse 23, that he might make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy. Y'all see that one? That up there? Yep. Vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. There in verse number 22, it speaks of that, that fitted them to destruction or, or fitted to destruction. I'm looking, yeah, fitted to destruction at the end of verse 22. But notice it doesn't say that, that God fitted them for destruction. It doesn't say that God designed them for destruction. It doesn't say that God created them. God did not fit them for destruction. Now, verse 23, it says the vessels of mercy. God prepared them unto glory it does not say that he fitted them to destruction as if God had prepared them that way but yet it says that he prepared the vessels for glory God has never and will never make man just to condemn them God doesn't make man just to bring judgment upon him the word of God says whosoever 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 shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. That scripture could not be written if a person was fitted unto destruction by the hand of God. If God made a vessel to be condemned, only to be condemned, then you could not say, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved because that unfit person might come call upon the name of the Lord. 
So what we see is that God fitted no one for destruction. God designed no one for hell. God designed no one to bring judgment again. God, God made vessels of mercy that he had afore prepared unto glory. Those who are fitted to destruction are only fitted by their own denial of the Son of the living God. Anyone who is fitted to destruction is only because they have heard the gospel and they have said, no, God, I'm not interested in what you have to offer. They've chosen their own path. So what Paul is showing us is that just like with Pharaoh, everyone is given an opportunity to see the hand of God. Everyone is given the ability to choose. The condemnation only comes after they have refused the gift of God. God fitted, designed, predestined no one to go to hell. But it does not change the fact that he can see hell in the millennium and know who's there. So God already knows things. But then Paul concludes this part of the discussion by assuring us of the fact that, that God's mercy, ooh, I'm going to like this one, is just as available to the Gentiles as it is to the Jew. Oh, I like this part of the story. Jesus, Jesus was not an afterthought of sin. The cross was not an afterthought from the rejection of Jesus. The salvation to the Gentiles, that is not an afterthought of the rejection of the Jews. Paul shows us that God's love for all men, and God does have a love for all men, anybody whosoever, that God has a love for all men, that God loved every single one of us, but the love that God has for us is not a result of the rejection by the Jews. God doesn't love us because the Jews didn't love him back. God already loved us. God already had a plan in place for all of us. God's dealing with Israel was not at the expense of God's love for all men, but it was based on God's infinite knowledge. Because God already knew what would happen. So God's word clearly predicted a revival of the Gentiles. Paul says in verse 24, Even us, whom he hath called not only of Jews, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith in O.C., I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. It shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. O.C. is, of course, Hosea. Hosea is that prophet whom God had marry a prostitute named Gomer. Wouldn't you love that? God makes you not only, it ain't bad if he makes you marry a prostitute, but her name is Gomer. I got an issue with both of those. But God, God made him marry this prostitute so that she would leave him, so that she would commit adultery and fornication, that he would bring her back and see that God shows a picture there. But, but what he was doing is using it to teach him about the nation of Israel's adultery against God, that their harlotry against God. That's what idol worship is. If you have anything in your life that you've put before God, it is an idol in our life. And an idol in our life, anything that is put before God, God views it as, as idolatry, but God also views it as adultery. It's cheating on God. So God had Hosea marry the, this adulterous woman, the, this unfit in every kind of way, so that he might learn something to teach the children of Israel. Now, 
if, if we look at the Old Testament, nowhere before have the Gentiles ever been called the people of God. They've been called dogs. They've been called the enemy. They're, they're nothing but trash. But, but never before have, have we seen them called the children of God. But in the New Testament, the Gentile, as well as the Jew, has been lifted higher than anything the Jew could have ever been lifted to in the Old Testament. We have the right to be called the sons of God. That was never possible in the Old Testament. They were called the children of God, the tribe of God, the nation of God. But you and I as individuals are called the children of God. Verse number 27. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. There's a multitude of people. There's a multitude of those that have rejected God, but yet a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Seboeth had left us seed, we had been as Sodoma and been made like unto Gomorrah. Of course, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and the utter destruction of them. God's ways are not always only perfect but they're always perfectly consistent with the already written word everything that happened in christ was perfectly consistent with what was already written everything that will happen in revelation and even this association with the book of daniel everything will happen perfectly according to the way that is already written God is perfect in every way and everything, but every perfect thing that God does is in perfect alignment with what we already have in his perfectly handwritten word. That's why this book is so valuable. That's why this book is so special to us. That's why we need to study to show thyself approved. That's why it is so important as children of God to study this book because this book dictated, detailed everything that God did, everything that Christ did, and everything that God's going to do. Every answer to every problem every solution everything's here it's just not written out the way we want it sometimes it requires some digging and some studying and some research sometimes it takes a year to find one answer to one question but it's in there thank you god for the word we see here that not all of the sons of the patriarchs were counted as israelites god in his long suffering waited a long time, just as we looked at earlier about the flood and, and the Assyrians that came in. God waited a long time. He was long-suffering. He was very patient. The wisdom of God, the will of God, and the word of God all agree in God's dealing with judgment and with mercy. The last four verses here, we'll just, we'll just finish up. It's time to go so we'll just do these last four verses real quick because paul kind of summarizes things up anyway what shall we say then that the gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained righteousness attained to righteousness even the righteousness which is of faith but israel which followed after the law of righteousness hath not attained to the law of righteousness wherefore because they sought it not by faith but as it were by the works of isaiah or, or as it were by the works i'm gonna have to open my book i didn't print the rest of that out Sorry about that. Y'all bear with me a minute. You got it up there? For they stumped. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, as it were with the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone, verse 32. Verse 33, 
As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Isaiah said in chapter 28, verse 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a foundation for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation that he believed shall not make haste. He that believeth shall not make haste. I laid a cornerstone. I laid the foundation, and he that believeth shall not make haste. Paul makes a reference here to it. This shall be for a sanctuary, a stone, a stumbling block, a rock of offense, both houses of Israel for a gin and for a snare unto the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse number 15 of Isaiah chapter 8, And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Christ is the solid rock, the chief cornerstone. He was sent to the Jew, but many of them stumbled over Christ. Christ was sent, the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, the redemption, but yet the Jew stumbled over the Messiah. See, they, they were looking for what they didn't get. They were looking for this powerful, militant leader that could overthrow all of these worldly kings, but God sent them a Messiah. They were looking for this lion, and he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But they were looking for this mighty lion, but God sent a lamb. God sent a sacrifice. They were looking for a throne. They wanted to be big dogs on the campus. They wanted to lead the earth. They were looking for, for a kingdom. But God sent a cross, and they missed it. God sent the answer. It just wasn't what they were looking for. God sent it exactly the way that the law and the prophet, everything that they adhered to, everything that they're holding on to of the law and the prophet of Moses and of everything that's written before them, what we call the Old Testament, they adhered to all that. God told them everything about this Christ that was coming, yet when he came, they missed it. So what, what we see here in this section of the letter, that this last part, just kind of putting it all together, we see the completeness of God's sovereignty. We see the completeness of God's will, but we also see the completeness of God's word, all of it working together in harmony, in one accord for the salvation of souls for all men, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Nothing is ever by accident. Nothing has ever caught God off guard. COVID-19 did not surprise God. What's going on in Washington hasn't surprised God. He holds the heart of the king in his hand. We need to be praying that everybody up there gets saved and turn this country back around. They ain't going to do no good to pray for who's going to win because ain't none of them no good. We need to be praying that the Holy Spirit would draw them and that some of those knuckleheads up there would come to know Christ and that they would turn this country back to the principles of the word of God where we came from. But what Paul shows here in the Word of God is the completeness in this text in the last half. So that's, that's, that's a very, very vague crash course of the last half, but I'm out of time, and I'm sure their Christmas parties is over and everything's done, so they're probably ready for you to come get your children. So I'm going to let you do that here in just a minute. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Terry did get to come home just a little while ago. So that's good. Good. Continue to pray for Terry. There was, there was high hopes that he might get to come home today. A little bit of a concern there is now that Miss Phyllis doesn't get it. Um, so certainly be praying there. Um, he's back at home, but continue praying, praying for them and, and all the ones on the prayer list. If you don't have it on your list, you can go back and watch it. Larry had this up tonight. You can watch the first part. Make sure you get these people on your prayer list and add to them. Anybody believe in the power of prayer? What did I say last week? only thing God can't do is answer a prayer we didn't pray. So be faithful to pray. Be faithful to pray for the sick and pray for grace for the families. It's tough right now. They can't go in the hospital and see them. Can't nobody go in and visit. They're in there by themselves. Can't nobody come in. God, thank you for being so good. God, it wouldn't take me but a minute to get a little sob story going about all the negative things that's going on. But I know you're good. God, I just want to tell you thank you, Father. I pray you take these that are sick. Would you reach down and touch them, God? And we pray especially for the sick that you get of healing, God. I pray for their families that you give grace and peace in these crazy, troubling times. And God, I do pray for salvation of those in Washington. I pray that we'd return to a country, thus saith the Lord. I pray we'd go back to one nation under God, indivisible. I pray we'd go back to in God we trust. Lord, I pray you'd continue to extend your hand of mercy upon this country. I pray you'd continue to be long-suffering in spite of our wickedness and our failure. And I pray that you'd give us, your children, the strength to go out into this dark world and be a light, Lord, a beacon of hope in a time of hopelessness. God, I pray for everybody in this place. Would you empower us and strengthen us, God? For all the children here on this campus, help them to be a light in their school, God. Help us, Father, to be pleasing to you. We love you, Lord. You've been good to us. We thank you and we praise you in the precious holy name of Jesus. Amen.